Well, humans do love greatness, don't we? We love to be great. We love to be around greatness. We love to at least be near greatness. We even love to argue about greatness. As I was eating dinner with uh, a few guys a couple of weeks ago, we were um, in a, a lively discussion about the basketball goat, greatest of all time, for those of you a little slower. Um, <laughs> who is the basketball goat, right? And so um, my friend, he's well-meaning and otherwise very intelligent, um, but he was, he was arguing that it was Michael Jordan because he has the better shoe deal and he has more championships, right? And I was trying to gently guide this brother to the truth um, that, uh, that LeBron James, because of his ability to uh, make his teammates better as well as um, his pure basketball skill, holds the title as the greatest of all time. And um, we actually gathered the attention of one of the kitchen workers. I'm not sure how he heard our conversation, but he came out and he decided to give his insight. And uh, he actually, he agreed with my friend, which I think is to my credit, he felt the need to come out and, and argue, right? So I think he knew he was wrong, but we'll leave that there. Um, but you see, right, even this, even this argument about some, something trifling, right, the a basketball player's greatness um, leads to a man leaving his, his job to make sure he gets his two cents in to be around this discussion of greatness. Um, you see, greatness in, in basketball is great fodder for small talk. Um, greatness in the kingdom, though, carries eternal weight, doesn't it? Kingdom greatness, what it really means to be great for eternity, carries much more weight than this simple little question about who is the greatest basketball player of all time. And, and James and John's question gets at something that, that's deep within each of us, right? This desire to achieve something meaningful, Right, to be significant. This, this nagging feeling that we're not quite there yet, that we're not really succeeding at what we were, what we were created to do, that we're not really successful. And this leads in us a drive, right? an ambition, a desire to, to grasp at it. So this question resonates with us, right? but you can hear even in the question, it's hardly an innocent question. Um, you hear this, first of all, in the fact that they got their mama to come ask Jesus for them. Uh, and not only their mama, but if you look at Mark 15, this is likely Salome, right, who is Mary's sister. Uh, so it's also most likely Jesus's aunt. So not only are they saying, Mama, could you go? They're saying, hey, maybe Jesus will listen to Aunt Salome. So let's, let's ask her, because we know, we know deep in our hearts this question reveals some not so great stuff about us, right? But if our mama asks it, then he won't blame us. So you can kind of sense the backdoor deal that they're trying to strike by enlisting the family matron to draw a promise from Jesus. But Jesus sees right through it, right? In verse 20 uh, and 22, uh, Jesus says, you don't know what, I'm sorry, verse 22, you don't know what you are asking. That you there is plural, right? So he immediately, mama asks, but he stops talking to mama. He turns back to James and John and says, you plural, you too don't know what you're asking. Your mom might have asked it, but I see, I see what you're getting at, right? But before we even get there, those first few verses that we read in Matthew chapter, starting in verse 17, Jesus has just given a prediction of his death. This is the third prediction in Matthew's gospel so far of his death. It's the first time that he's mentioned the specifics, right, of the Pharisees and the scribes conspiring against him and the Gentiles crucifying him and mutilating his body. And right in the context of this prediction, this is the question that James and John the sons of Zebedee choose to ask Jesus. You see, while the disciples were daydreaming about crowns, Jesus is trying to gently remind them that kingdom greatness begins with the cross. 
Kingdom greatness begins with a cross. So their daydream, to be fair to the brothers, is not totally out of the blue, right? It comes from Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, just a couple of verses before. Jesus says to them, Truly I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they've heard about these twelve thrones in Matthew 19, and so their minds are turning, right? And they say, okay, so twelve thrones, twelve apostles, okay, that's us. I got the title of apostle, right? How can I, how can I climb the next rung on the ladder? I've already got in with Jesus. I'm an apostle. I've been guaranteed a throne what else can I make sure that I'm really successful? I'm the, the best and most successful, most significant apostle. Now remember, these brothers are in the inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John are, are Jesus' three who most often have the most intimate conversations with him. So you can almost imagine them eyeing Peter and thinking, man, he, everybody tends to ask Peter all the questions. Everybody really respects Peter and wants to know what he has to say. And he's always the first one to talk whenever Jesus asks. He's always spouting stuff off. And they're thinking... Maybe we can one-up Peter. Right? Peter's great, but what if we could get on the right and the left? So their question is not totally out of the blue, and yet you can hear in it this ambition, this hunger for success. I imagine their minds, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in those verses, their minds went to Daniel 7, right? Suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given a dominion and glory and kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. So I want you to hear, there is a kernel of faith in this question. They're trusting that Jesus is telling the truth when he's saying that he's going to inaugurate a kingdom and they're going to get thrown. So there's, there's a kernel of faith, but there's at the very least an ignorance and more likely a selfish ambition behind even this kernel of faith in their question. Their motives are mixed. Right? So too, if we're honest with ourselves, are ours. You see, we can read this and feel the jar of Jesus predicting his death, and then the disciples immediately asking about thrones. We can say, man, where'd you get that, guys? Come on, you're not tracking it yet. How often do we do this maneuver too? When Jesus predicts his death, he points us to the way of the cross. He points us to the way of suffering, the way of pain, the way of loss. And we immediately begin to think, how can I skip that part, right? I mean, yeah, that's, that's fine. I know that's true, persecution, all that good stuff. But, but maybe I can flip around that and, and just skip to the crown. That's the part I want, right? This seeps into our theological and cultural assumptions all over the place. Right? This prosperity gospel does this with money. Christian nationalism does this with political power. Liberal theology does this with cultural prestige. All of these have one thing in common, don't they? They sing the siren song of a crown absent of a cross. They lay out before us this idea that we can have the throne of Christ and wiggle around the sufferings of Christ. And this isn't just cultural either. This happens in our relationships. How often do you stew an offense that they just don't respect me enough? They don't take me seriously enough. They misunderstand where I'm coming from. They don't get me. But deep down, what I really am is deserving of significance and respect. We're reminded by these brothers how easy it is to mix even our ambition with our spirituality. Right? Their, their, their ambition isn't cultural or even interpersonal yet. It's really spiritual. 
It's tied up in their views of Jesus' kingdom and their place in it. So we go to Bible study, likewise, mining God's word, not for ways to be more near to Jesus, not for nourishment for our souls, but for ways to sound more spiritual and impress our churchy friends, right? To get the right words and the right lingo so that we can be in the right tribe and so that we can talk bad about these people but talk good about those people, right? We want to be on the in group. And so we even, again, with mixed motives, not, not that we're all conspiracy theorists around here trying to you know, move through and get what we need. We don't even mean to do it, but it's just built into us. This craving for significance and ambition. Like the sons of Zebedee, our pride and our ambition blind us to what true greatness is. Now, to be clear, the solution is not don't go to Bible study, right? Don't go on a mission trip. Don't minister to other people because my motives might be mixed, right? That's not the solution Jesus is giving any more than the solution for the brothers was don't ask the question and just keep striving for selfish ambition, right? The problem is not in their question. The problem is not even in their desire for greatness. The problem is in their definition of greatness. So their issue is not that they desire greatness. Their issue is how they define greatness. And Jesus' response is so beautiful. Oh, it's so good. He He's so patient with knuckleheads like James and John and knuckleheads like you and me. It's glorious that you can almost picture him, you know, lifting up a silent prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're asking. He says as much, doesn't he? In verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We are able, they said to him. Are you able to drink the cup? You hear in the cup, right, the image of what Jesus would drink. And this cup is not just mere suffering or just a path, a quick, quick fix to greatness. This cup is, in the Old Testament and the New, typically symbolizes the wrath of God upon his enemies. You hear this in Psalm 75. God is judge. He brings down one and exalts another. There is a cup in the Lord's hand full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. Jesus is picking up on this image to to say, guys, you can't drink the cup that I'm about to drink. And James and John flippantly, you got to admire their zeal almost, right? Oh, yeah, we we can. Yeah, we can. Sure, we're willing, right? It's almost like you you hear Peter as well, right? I'm not going to betray you, Lord. Not me. All these other guys might, but not me. No, the cup that Jesus would drink would be out of their hands. The cup that Jesus would drink would be the cup that only he could drink to the last drop. Indeed, James and John would endure suffering. James, according to Acts 12, would be the first martyred apostle, and John would be the last living apostle exiled on Patmos to live his days alone. They would both experience suffering, but they're ignorant right here of what that suffering even means, right? They're thinking, I got to go through a battle for a couple of days, and then I get my crown in a week. And as Jesus so often does in his patient and gentle manner, he answers the wrong question with the right answer. So he tells them, look, that's up to my father. Just as Jesus came submitting himself to the father's will and leaving his own glory up to the father, he says, so too do you. Your task is not to squeeze into thrones. Your task is to submit to the will of the Father and leave your glory up to Him. So that's part of the lesson. 
But that's not the full lesson for James and John. As a matter of fact, this lesson's not even just for James and John, because we see in verse 24 that they weren't the only ones dealing with selfish ambition when it comes to the kingdom. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. So their indignancy, yeah, that's a word, sure. Um, Their indignancy shows something about their heart too, doesn't it? Because we see that Jesus immediately calls them together for another sermon. So their indignancy isn't because they were indignant at their sin and they wanted to help these brothers along and remove their selfish ambition. No, their indignancy was over the fact that they beat them to the punch. They wanted exactly what the disciples wanted. I'm sorry, what the brothers wanted. They wanted exactly the same thing. They wanted to sit on Jesus' right and left too. Their definition of greatness was the same definition the brothers were working with. They were no different. Isn't it true of us as well that what we despise often reveals what our hearts truly crave? What we see in others and resent so often reveals things about ourselves. What do you resent and why do you resent it in others? Does your resentment of your political opponents for their grabs at power reveal your own lust for power and the fact that they're grabbing at the same thing you are? Does your resentment of someone else's social media and their vanity reveal something about your own standards of self-image and success? Does your resentment of the suck up at work reveal anything about your own deep-seated desire for the position that he's eyeing and he's going after? You see, what Jesus is aiming at here is not recalibration of our humility. He's not just trying to make them a little more humble. And his call isn't for them to care about greatness less. Instead, he's going to turn their idea of greatness upside down. Like Jesus has done all throughout the Gospels, he's going to take one definition, just like he did with faith and the children, right? And turn it on its head. Say, no, you're trying to push out the children because you don't think they have the right kind of faith, when actually their faith is the kind that you should be striving for, this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. So while James and John are assuming that greatness lies in the status or office that they hold, I was an apostle, then I was in the inner circle, my next step is going to be right and left hand of Jesus. So Jesus has shown us this true faith of a child. He shows us this true greatness in a servant. And the truth is, everybody wants to be called a servant, right? Nobody wants to be treated like one. Like you come up to me and you're like, Brandon, you're such a great servant. I'm like, oh, thank you. Glory to God. Amen. And then you say, so here's my cup of coffee. I'm going to need two cream and a sugar and get along with it. Be quick. You might come back with more than sugar in your coffee, right? That's, I mean, I, I love being called a servant. And, oh, yeah, call me a servant. That's, that's spiritual lingo. You're impressed by my servanthood, right? I have an ambition to be a servant and be seen as a servant, whatever. But then you actually treat me like a servant, and then my true self shows, right? I bristle. Hold on now. I don't want to be that kind of servant. I want to be the kind of servant that you're impressed by, right? Well, the nature of a servant is you're not impressed by them, right? In the same way, That's what Jesus calls us to, not to a a view of impressive servanthood, but in acknowledgement of and fellowship with the lowly. To be with and be treated as the lowly are treated. To identify with, in the way that Jesus did, those who are lowly. You see, the way to kingdom greatness is to get low. The path to kingdom greatness lies in lowliness.
What an encouragement this is to those of you this morning who feel stuck. To those of you who are constantly getting stepped on. Those of you who are oppressed. Those of you who feel like you are serving all the time and never getting served yourself. You see, Jesus' words here don't excuse anyone who's wronged you, but they do provide a great comfort in your experience of oppression. You are living a life of greatness. You are living a life of honor. As you serve and constantly feel like you are giving and never receiving, join the club of Jesus. This is the life of kingdom greatness. You see, no bad boss, no jerk customer, no unjust system can change the reality that you are great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I did not come climbing up a ladder, but descending down a ladder. I did not come to be ministered to, but to minister. I didn't come to make you great or impressive or influential by any standard that your peers might measure you. No, you won't receive true greatness by supporting the right candidate, moving into the right house in the right neighborhood, or even drawing the right boundaries around the correct theological tribe. Kingdom greatness is only achieved by getting low. By being servants, by being where servants are and doing what servants do, by being, as it happens, just like our Lord, by following in His way. J.C. Ryle says, God has given those who follow after holiness the clearest of precepts, the best of motives, and the most encouraging of promises. But that is not all. He has further supplied us with the most perfect pattern and example, even the life of his own son. You want to know what lowliness looks like? You notice Jesus doesn't pull a servant and say, do it like him. He did that with the child in the faith, right? He picked up a child. He said, have faith like this child. With a servant, who does he point to? He says, do it like me. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Son of man emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus knew the way to kingdom greatness was by going low. And that's exactly where he went for you and for me. This is the trail that our master has blazed, the trail of lowliness, of humility, of real greatness. So let's get down to brass tacks. Are you great? As you sit here this morning, are you great? Maybe a little easier question to answer. Is this the kind of greatness your life is built around? Is this the kind of greatness that gets you up in the morning to strive for? Or are you striving for significance or worthiness or control somewhere else? You see, if Jesus says this is where our greatness is going to be, this is how we'll get it, by going low, why is it that we keep chasing it in all these other places? Why do we go to our career or to our parenting or to our conservative and liberal bona fides hoping to find greatness there, hoping to grasp at greatness there, hoping to find our meaning there? When Jesus has given us the map, not only has he given us the map, but he's already blazed the trail. But perhaps the more important question than are we great is how do we become great? How do we change our idea of greatness? How do we realign our lives and our passions to kingdom greatness? This is countercultural to everything that we're built upon, right? We have all these voices giving us, preaching to us every day what true greatness is. How, how can we change that? How can we push back against those messages and follow in the way of Jesus? Well, like I said, Jesus doesn't find a servant and say, go do it like him. 
Instead, he points them to himself. And when it comes to greatness and service, we find in this passage that Jesus is both the image and the impulse of our greatness. He's both the image and the impulse of our greatness. Another nice alliteration, because I'm a preacher and that's what we do, is Jesus is both the model and the motivation. Right? In other words, he gives us the example, but then he also gives us the impulse or the motivation to do it. It comes from him. We don't find it somewhere else. We don't just look at him and say, oh, I want to do that. Let me go figure out how to do it. The motivation comes from him, and it comes from this word. Read it with me. Verse 26, it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see the secret sauce of humility. The fuel of real greatness lies in that word, ransom. The path of greatness through servanthood is in being ransomed from the slavery of selfish ambition. You know what ransom is. We think of typically right kidnapping situations in movies where somebody grab someone, and then they charge a cost, right, to get this person back. You pay the ransom. Uh, that's, that's what we think of. Typically in the ancient world, this would have been uh, bondage, kind of a debtor's slavery, right? So you owe a lot of money, and the only way you can get out of paying off that, um, that debt with your own labor would be for someone else to pay on your behalf. Um, similar to the concept of redemption that we hear a lot in Scripture. Imagine it as a, just a modern equivalent. Imagine you've built up, right, this credit line of sin, and on the path to pay it off, you think, the only way I can pay this off is by becoming great. The only way I can make this go away is in my greatness. So I'm going to choose a path, right, whether it's career or family, whatever path that you sit out upon, I'm going to become great by someone's standard, and that will make that credit, that debit go away from my account. And so you chase, right? This is what we do. We chase our definition of greatness, and in doing so, we curl further inward physically, emotionally, spiritually, as we chase these paths because we keep racking up debt and we're not paying any of it off. And so all of our resources, all of our emotional energy, all of our physical energy is going not into the path of real greatness, not into the way that can actually see our debt paid, but instead our debit goes up and our credit stays the same. And as the debt grows, you feel your definition of greatness shrink. Some of you here are feeling that, right? The, the path that you embarked on is not turning out the way you thought it would. Maybe you lost your job during the pandemic. Maybe the last year has exposed fractures in your family that you didn't know were there. Whatever definition of greatness that you had is showing some fault lines. And God in his mercy is opening your eyes to see your definition of greatness and significance cannot be built there. Meanwhile, as we chase and seek to pay and pay and pay, the angels sing the chorus, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid our debt. He has paid our ransom. You cannot pay it off yourself. The path to true greatness, the path to real freedom is in being freed from real slavery, the slavery of ambition. Recall Jesus' words of prayer while he was sweating drops of blood. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prayed for his father to take the cup, the same cup he's referring to here, the cup of wrath from him, and yet the father did not take it, and Jesus drank it to the dregs, just as the psalmist proclaimed. You see, Salome 
would see true greatness. She would watch with her sister as her nephew was crucified, humiliated, brought low. James and John would live lives of greatness. They would live lives of humility, experience the kind of humility, lowliness, suffering, and be exalted on the last day. Like Salome and James and John, you and I can only be freed to serve once we've been served. We can only love because He has first loved us. If you have not tasted the love of Jesus, if you have never experienced the forgiveness of sin, none of this stuff matters. You'll walk out the door and you'll have a new ambition. I'm going to beat everybody at loving. And they're all going to be impressed at how great of a lover I am. Because your debt won't be paid. You won't be full. You'll be operating on emptiness. But if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if you have experienced the payment of your debt, you are freed. Jesus has taken care of me. My emotional, physical, spiritual well-being is in Christ's hands. I'm freed to overflow. I don't need anything else. Jesus is the gift. He is the giver and he is the gift. And he is enough. See, at the end of the day, gratitude is the fuel of real service. Gratitude is the stuff that powers greatness. It's the, it's the hitch that connects the truck of ambition to the trailer of servanthood. You see, if we have an ambition to serve, we're right where Jesus was. That's what he came to do, not to be served, but his ambition was to serve because that was the will of his Father. One example, how much more joyful, how much more satisfied, how much more productive would your marriage be if you quit tallying who owes what and who gets to sit on the throne today and got about the business of serving each other? Tried to outdo one another in service. Had a competition, had an ambition to see who could serve more that day. Not only that, but how much more would you receive? Right? Instead of taking your pennies out of the box, right, all of a sudden you've paid 100 your wife pays 100 you're outdoing one another. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for you. You can't manufacture this kind of marriage. It can only be fueled by a debt that's been paid. It can only be fueled out of an overflow of knowing Jesus has me. I don't have to have myself. I don't have to take care of myself. I can take care of another. I've been taken care of. I've been loved. I'm not constantly seeking love and affirmation and greatness because Jesus has made me great. A life transformed by the gratitude of grace will give instead of take. It will serve instead of dominate. It will love instead of hate. Once you're released from sin and pride and self-centeredness, you can be freed to bless those around you. You can live a life of true greatness. So the question before us this morning is, how is God calling you to be greater? How is God calling you to live a life of greatness? Whether for the first time or the hundredth time, He's calling you to re-embark on the trail of Jesus, to walk the path of humility, and there find love, service, and true greatness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning for uh, the debt that you have paid in your Son. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming not to be served, not to take from us, not even yet to simply to rule over us, but to serve. 
to model for us what it means to live a life of humble greatness. Lord, how we need your help. We acknowledge, Father, that we can't do this apart from your grace. We need to see and savor Jesus this morning. We do pray that you would expose our ambitions, Lord, those that have been um, held in in captivity by the enemy, those that we have hidden away um, in our own hearts and minds and that you are now exposing. We pray that you will continue um, that work, not so that we can writhe in self-pity, but so that we can experience our debt being paid. We can experience true forgiveness as we come to you trusting in faith with the faith of a child and the heart of a servant, wanting to obey, wanting to trust. So what I pray for um, those of us here this morning who are, who are sensing the call to, uh, to repent and believe again. I ask that you would give grace to each of us in our time of need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.